Hello and welcome to Spookshire Podcast with the Mostest, hosted in recent episodes by that fabulous Douglas Skelton, the man, the myth, the legend. With me today is another legend, Neil Lancaster, former police officer and now writer of fine thrillers. Neil, how are you? I am very, very good, and thank you for that lovely intro. Yes, I'm good at intros. I could have done the Douglas Skelton version of a hello. Are are you there? And you could have answered back. Are you there? But 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 we try. We, we at least try a semblance of uh, kind of professionalism. Neil, no, you're... I, is Douglas hanging out pretending to be George Galloway again? Do you think he's like George Galloway? He looks the spit of George Galloway. He keeps threatening me over the uh, over Twitter every time I mention it. So I, I won't mention it anymore. I promise. Twould that he had the semblance of the articulate nature of Mr. Galloway. We would be a star podcast within I Am The Cat. Remember that one from... <laughs> I, I do. I Am The Cat. Or, or when he said to Saddam Hussein, I admire your indefatigability. Yes, uh, indeed. What, what a tit. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> that's, that's a personal comment. Uh, now, Neil, you... After being a long-time resident of many parts of the country, because we'll we'll come to that in a minute, you're now in the Black Isle, am I right? I am. I'm in the Black Isle, which is uh, you know about twenty minutes away from Inverness. Twenty minutes from the fine city of Inverness, where I've spent many a happy hour. Uh, and if anybody knows Inverness, pop into Watersons there. Toby at Watersons is a fine chap. Have you met Toby yet? I have met Toby on a couple of times, trying to uh, make sure that he does have copies of my book in. And uh, yeah, he's, uh, we, uh, he's a nice fellow, and uh, he couldn't be more helpful. So I recommend him highly to everybody. He's he's a good lad. He's a good lad. Now, Neil, where did you grow up? So, clearly, somewhere in the estuary. Am I, am I right? Well, funnily enough, much as you wouldn't hear it from one's accent, um, I actually was born in Liverpool. Um, really? My yeah, indeed. In the in the sixties, um, possibly after you, not very much, but a bit after you. Um, well, give give me the year, and I'll tell you. Sixty six. Oh, just a while. I'm I'm the end of sixty five, so you've got me there just just by a narrow margin. Anyway, they count, but they all count. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Why? Yes, they do. Uh, so you're born in, in Liverpool. What part of Liverpool, Neil? In Wavertree, um, which is. Proper hardcore Liverpool. My it dad is. was actually a, my dad. Dad was a carpenter and he worked on the docks, but he uh, worked very hard and got himself qualified as a clerk of works, and then took a job in uh, Seven Oaks in Kent and moved the whole family down south um, in the late sixties. Down south, mate. Um, so, so how did you adjust? Cause you, I mean, you're a bit like me. I mean, because I grew up in various married quarters. My father was in, in the Royal Navy, so. When there's a recording of me at three years old reciting, Mary had little lamb. His face was fleece was white as snow, and that, and that 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 was the way I used to speak about. And, and you know, I, 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 but but we ended up in Campbelltown. My granny, my mum, my well, my granny was from Macrihanish, so we we decided we would be back there. Uh, how did you adjust to being down in Seven Oaks? Well, I was, I was only a wee nipper, um, so I, it meant nothing to me. I just, I, I, all, I grew up with a big sense of relief, I think, around my, with my family. <laughs> I moved from inner city Liverpool 
down to quite rural Kent. Now, it was a council house. I grew up in a council estate, but sure. it was a council sure estate that. that had been plonked down in the middle of a load of multi-million pound houses. So yeah. scruffy arsed urchins like myself in amongst all <laughs> these um, toffs. So we had a terrific time going around causing trouble and everything. It was a, I had a wonderful childhood. Yeah, we were the same, and I grew up in a council estate as well. We called them schemes in Scotland, and <laughs> and when you when you have conjure up the the a scheme in your mind, you think of you know the Easter House and places like in Glasgow. But this this couldn't have been further from that. It was a very friendly place. Everyone knew everyone else. You've been to Campbellton Neil, you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Which we're, we're coming to that in a second. So so after school, did you decide to join? The Royal Air Force. I did. At, seven, at 17, I, I failed everything at school, so I was completely underqualified to do anything. And this was, of course, a time of fairly high unemployment in the uh, Yeah. 80s. So um, I was. I joined the Air Force, and um, I stayed there for six years, and it was, yeah, it was good fun. And during that time that you spent in the Air Force, you were down in my neck of the woods, Mike. You were well, yeah. in Kintyre, RAF McRehanish. I was. We, um, I joined the RAF police, and uh, part of the training they did there, there was at RAF McRehanish because it was an old big weapons storage dump. Yes. There, which they wanted to train us on, because back then the RAF had a big like nuclear bombs and everything to put on the planes. And uh, uh-huh. we, they were training us to um, guard those. I mean, really, all they should have done is just stand in that bit of wire with your gun. And that was basically all we used to do. Quite boring. Um, <laughs> anyway, I tell you what, what it was boring because I did my training and then I got posted. I spent some time in, in Suffolk at a, uh-huh. a, a, a non-nuclear site. But then I went to Germany. I spent three years in Germany where we were, the REF still had its big nuclear capability. Now, every Indeed. single night, they had these, um, what they used to call the, the storage area, and you had the QRA, where they had these planes with big bombs on them, you know, proper, what we used to call a bucket of instant sunshine on them. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and they were guarded by all these RAF policemen. Now, the mental state of most of these guys, because the job was 12 hours, sticking sure. at a bit of wire, but all these guys were armed up with, like, self-loading rifles with, a, with you know, 80 rounds of ammunition. And uh, you, you'd go out to take over from someone in the snow and you knew that the bloke looked dodgy and he would have written the words help in 50 foot letters in the snow and he had, good he had grief. yeah straight up it was the most boring job anybody's ever done but um, it was alright <laughs> I had quite a good time uh, you, uh, you, can we go back to your time at Macri Hanish how did you oh, enjoy yeah. it I, I tell you what it was a good place because they took us there and we did adventure training and, you know, taking up Kintyre and up into the hills. And that was great fun. Um, but the one thing we got, we all got taken in at the time and warned heavily. They said, now, your nearest town, boys, is, uh, is Campbelltown. We advise you not to go there because the locals <laughs> are not so well disposed to you, us from the Royal Air Force. So, yeah, there's been one or two skirmishes, I believe, with uh, said... Campbelltonians. Uh, so oh yes. Presence was discouraged. Uh, I remember they they actually the navels the American Navy SEALs were based out at Ed McDonald's, as you probably know for a while. And I remember there was this big Barney that the SEALs came in. They're all built like Garth, you know, the big muscle, muscly guys, you know. And 
they got beaten the two shades of out of them. And <laughs> you wonder to yourself, if these are the elite troops of America, what's what's the rest like? They just said just the women going for them as well, weren't they? Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, the Campbelltonian women were not to be messed with. That was definitely for sure. Oh, almost <laughs> definitely, no. You would, wouldn't. Oh, oh goodness <laughs> sake! You wouldn't do that in a million years. That's how my father and I met. My 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 mother and father met at the uh, a dance in the Victoria Hall in Campbelltown, and those you probably remember it. And and it was a big dance, and he somebody knocked into her and spilled his drink over, and he my father gallantly punched him in the face and that's, <laughs> that's what, what a romantic thing yeah, I think so. <laughs> so after your experience of the RAF and it sounds to have been a, a, a very um, interesting one and certainly from a, and the aspect of travel and all the rest of it, the way everybody opens their minds doesn't it of, of, of young people and you see the other, another side of life you decided to move on and you went next to the Metropolitan Police, am I right? Indeed, yeah. 1990, um, I was very fortunate because I, I put all my papers in because I knew I was going to leave. Um, mm. I was married, I had a couple of kids, and I wanted to not be moving around all the time. I was literally, I was on the go the whole time, never stayed in one place for any length of time. So um, I, I put in and applied to join the Met, and uh, I literally left the RAF one day, joined the Met the very, very next. Uh, really? Over 30 years ago now, actually. Good grief. I mean, we, when I was at Tully Allen, uh, the police training college in Scotland, we had a, a guy who was straight out of the Marines, and he'd literally left the Marines on the Monday, and he joined us the next Monday. It was really, I mean, I thought to myself, why didn't you give yourself a break? Yeah. Um, and we were we were struggling with all this kit stuff and marching about in the middle of the night and running about hills and he just he just thought it was brilliant. You know, he says, oh, this is so easy." You know, <laughs> it, it was no effort to him whatsoever. Well, my class when I joined at Hendon, um, sort of thirty, 30 mm. years ago, it was twenty five percent of us were ex military. So yeah, we all just yeah, well, this, bit, this is this is no difficult. This ain't difficult. I mean, some of the guys struggled with the uh, you know the more academic side of it, but. Um, it was fine, you know. I really enjoyed my training. It was it was good fun. So, where, where did you serve first? You went straight out of Hendon into a, probably a tutor cop situation. A young, you'd be under the mentorship of some older constable. Am I right? Yeah, that was it. Street duties, they uh, street duties training. They used to call it. You did it like a ten week course when you went out. You were puppy walked, as they used to. Well, you <laughs> go out and you get gradually introduced to things. You know, soon as the first sight of any dead body. That you were there to, you know, make sure you knew what you could, you weren't going to faint. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. They made sure they got you, and you'll probably remember this yourself, Denzel. You know, they wanted you to be to deliver a death message quickly, because again, the really horrible things. Let's get, you know, let's get them out of the way. Um, yeah. So yeah, I went to I went to Kilburn, um, or Kilburn, Harles and Wills, and what's known as it was um, all part of the borough of Brent um, in northwest London. I went there. Uh, in 1990, and uh, served at the three mm -hmm. stations there for the next sort of ten years, both in in uniform and uh, and in CID. And your initial impressions of the police, uh, having been an RAF policeman as opposed to the civilian police, what what did you see as being the main difference, Neil? Well, it was real policing. I mean, the yeah. thing about the RAF is everyone's pretty well behaved. You know, there's not there's there's not a lot of crime. There's not a lot of badness. It was just a security role. I went. I mean, I was cast straight into it, and I was. It was really busy from 
the first minute because sure. Harlesden particularly, where which was a real boiling uh, place of malcontent at the time, um, the police weren't popular um, sure. by any stretch of the And there was a big drug problem. So yeah, it was full on, you know, hard, hard work and really, really great fun. The most fun really that I think anyone has is their first few years in uniform. Yes. Terrific. Because everything's new to you and it's quite exciting to sit in a police car and it's going at full pelt down the road with the sirens going, the blues and twos. You know, I mean, it is, it is, it is an unfortunately thrilling thing. Um, and then it all becomes a bit a bit pedestrian, doesn't it? Unless you diversified, you, you worked in various... Uh, sections of of the Met. Um, so, what kind of things did you do, Neil? Yeah, well, I went from uh, Kilburn. I went to Islington, which is a more traditional, proper North London, um, proper Cockney geezer area where I worked as a DC. Um, Brent was far more diverse. In fact, I mean, at the time, it had the biggest Caribbean population in Europe. Um, yeah. So it was a very different type of policing. So he went from all the various accents to proper, proper cockney geezers, you know, all right, son, squire, do me a favour, <laughs> all the time. And it, it was, and again, that was really good fun, but it was very different crime. And of course, Islington, whereas Brent was uni uniformly really quite deprived at the time, Islington was far more varied because it went from, you know, Tony Blair's gaff all yeah. the way down to your council estates. But it was a good place to police and it was a lot of fun. And I, I did a lot of work on the robbery squads and I ended up working quite a lot with uh, covert covert informants and things like that. So an awful lot of work with covert sources, developing sure. and, uh, and, and working with those, which was, you know, good fun and also a bit dangerous at times because they weren't to be trusted. Um, so, yeah, 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 I mean, co covert sources, um, I think most people who listen to this podcast would mean people, you know, informants, we would call them. Uh, in the yeah, general public, snouts, as they used to call them in London. Snouts, mate. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so the, these are these. Just to put the the spooks listeners, if they don't know already, these are people who are involved in some criminal activity or other, or know about it, who are paid by the police to give information regarding other criminals or situations that are ongoing. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. They do it for all manner of reasons. Uh, and the money did. Oh yes. And some of them, you know, fairly well out of it. Um, but a lot of them, it was different reasons, you know, revenge or taking out the opposition was always a favourite. Um, but it was, yeah, it was good. Yeah. It's the backbone of any type of sort of proactivity and, and large-scale police work survives on, on informants. And it, it was really rewarding to do. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, every, every police force lives and dies by the intelligence it collects, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, back then, um, there was less of the, the tech side of things, certainly you know, IT. Was. Yeah. Uh, so really, the old way of getting in, in amongst it, um, getting to know the villains and letting them know you, and also hopefully then turning a few of them, uh, you know, you could, you could save an awful lot of money by having a bad guy tell you about what other bad guys are doing than going through, you know, big putting surveillance teams out on people or, or things like that, which are obviously horrifyingly expensive to, to, to use. So, sure. Yeah, again, really good and lots of fun to do. I, I mean, I, I was... was it... Yeah, carry on, Dan. Carry on. No, you, you, go, you go on, Neil. All right, mate. Um, well, yeah, I went from there. I was there three years and at Islington, and then I 
went for the Homicide Task Force, which was part of the Serious Crime Commands, um, Serious and Organised Crime. And I worked on the Homicide Task Force there, which was, was when I first joined, it was actually called the Murder Suppression Team. The whole idea of that was um, we would, you'd have intelligence that so-and-so was, we suspected, involved in several murders, or he was mm -hmm. a predisposition to, be, to kill someone. And we would look to take them out of the game by whatever means necessary. So even if you suspect him of a murder, but there's no intelligence at all, chances are most of these people are bad guys anyway. So if they're sure. drug dealers, you take them off the streets for being drug dealers. And, uh, you know, hopefully you might do some good that way. So I spent five years on the Homicide Command and that, you know, that role broadened to being one where we would provide proactive support to homicide investigations. So we would then, you know, part of it was, was surveillance. So we all did, we were all surveillance trained and we would provide the surveillance support for homicide inquiries. So, you know, if they suspected mm -hmm. some, someone of a murder or someone had run off, we would, we would put them under surveillance or put their family under surveillance or their associates under surveillance, hopefully trying to trace them. I mean, I mean the biggest example of a surveillance job I did would be Levi Belfield. Um, okay, yeah, well, we all know that one. Yeah, I mean, we did, uh, I mean, it's been very extensively written about, Colin Sutton was the officer in charge of that, who's written uh, about it. It was a TV show last year that... Um, yeah, Martin I saw Williams. it, yeah. It was a really good show. It was really, really good. Um, it was well done, yeah. It was extremely well done. And we were on the surveillance team. They decided they wanted him under 24-7 surveillance on the run-up to his arrest because they were fairly sure he'd killed two people but they needed more evidence. So we were deployed to follow him and we were two teams alternating 24 seven behind him right up to the moment he, um, they arrested him early one morning. So yeah, that was sort of the most mm -hmm. notable one of the surveillance jobs they did, but of course there were many others. And of course, I think what a lot of members of the public don't realize is that most of the experiences of, of crime fortunately come from um, reading about it or watching dramas on television or watching, uh, the experiences of others, but when you're in the job, or as, as policemen re refer to themselves as being, it becomes pretty relentless, and you have to develop a very thick skin. How? Do, what were your coping strategies, Neil? I don't know, really. I mean, I was. I just used to get. I mean, certainly was on homicide. It was relentless. The hours were unbelievable i mean i didn't see my family for almost five years basically because i was just always at work i was up every morning really early and i was i wouldn't get back until you know i was doing 16 hours a day you know almost sure. most of the time it felt like and so you know it it was hard to find any headspace and it, it yeah it could get you down a bit after a while when you you hadn't you'd barely been home for you know a couple of weeks because you'd been in birmingham yeah. manhood you, you'd had to suddenly go screaming up the motorway to Newcastle because someone had fled there. So, I mean, I, I don't regret it. It was superb fun, but um, the work-life balance was zero. Uh, I mean, there was none. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that that uh, the way policing is, the kind of job it is, and the, the hours and the, the awkwardness of it all, it takes a toll in personal relationships. I think at one point I remember reading that that there was a huge percentage of divorces and, and separations within the within the police force and the, the fire service, and indeed within nurses, doctors, and the NHS, etc. Um, you you must have come across that kind of stuff. 
Well, personally, yeah, I'm, yeah, my marriage didn't survive. My first marriage didn't, didn't survive. Um, you know, I'm, I'm right, married, and right. couldn't be happier. Um, but yes, and you can't say it isn't connected because um, you're frozen. Yeah, and it was it was always the most important thing in the world. So you know, you'd say, "Oh, you're not going out again." I go, "Yeah," because you've got to find this bloke who's killed someone. You know, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's it, easy it, to justify, but it, it's hard to wrap. Yeah. Up. It gets to the stage where it crosses. The people talk about vocational jobs, you know, jobs that are just or vocations rather than just careers. And I think the police comes into that category because unless you're devoted to what you're doing, you you're not able to do the job properly. No, you have to be, and certainly in that type of police work. I mean, I I mean, I I was in uniform for a good period of time, and uniform work had very different pressures because um, it was your day to day thing. But the, the benefit of uniform is that you put your uniform back in the locker shut the door and the next day was the next day whereas with a lot of the yeah. work i was doing subsequently in, in when i worked i spent a long period of time working for the home office investigating very large scale immigration crime and the, uh-huh. I would be, the try the, the cases would be three years long and they were really really high value there was enormous you know we were generally prosecuting quite rich people who had a lot of money to spend on the defense that was very stressful sure. because it was hanging over you the whole time pouring over everything yeah. you've done trying to find a mistake you've made somewhere so that was mm-hmm. again a great deal of pressure um but you know it was very very satisfying as well uh, and tell me neil i mean i don't know how candid you can be about this um <clears throat> i i look back in, in the, my police career and I look back on, or the time I was in the police, and I look back on the on policing now. There's virtually no comparison um, to the way things work these days. Clearly, there's a heavy reliance on forensic uh, forensics and DNA and and all the the new innovations that have come come forth. What what do you think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's again, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I'd rather have all these things because they give, you know, it's much better to have these tools. But expectation levels become so much higher. Now, I mean, all cops now are walking around with a high-definition video camera on their lapel. Now, sure. the problem with that, what that means is the CPS, Crown Prosecution Service, obviously Procurator Fiscal in Scotland, they expect there now to be video of everything. So if there's not... yeah. They tend to say, well, if it's not, it's, it becomes almost, if it's not video recorded, it didn't happen, you know? And sure. So things like that make life more difficult. We are all now walking around with a supercomputer in our pockets all the time. I mean, I'm talking to you via yeah. my phone, and it is, sure. from, you think when you were in the police, Denzel, and when I first joined the police, there were, there were no computers. There was one station typewriter that you'd have to <laughs> have a fight <laughs> To, to try and get because uh, yeah. your sergeant would be there saying, I, said, I need those reports, that report needs to be typed. And I was like, well, I can't, because someone else has got the typewriter. <laughs> well, I, I, rem- I remember there was only one phone in the reports room, which is what we all use as a shift to, to, you know, to write up reports and do your investigation. And, you know, not only was there no such thing as computers, there was no such thing as mobile phones either. And, uh, you know, you had to stand in line to use this phone if you had to phone somebody up in the connection with your inquiries. It was, I, I, I don't think that anybody would realise, and, and there were still, there probably were in your time too, Neil, um, police boxes. 
Yeah, we we used I, to have police boxes in Glasgow. Yeah, there was one in London when I joined them. They were, we all had the key for it that used to be on our whistle chain, but I never I never saw that. I never, <laughs> I never that was that was no, I was I'm not I'm not that old. Oh, they were great. <laughs> there was yet. a few in Glasgow. The, 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 there's a wee there was a wee one bar fire, and you had a wee desk and there was a phone and that was basically and very much graffiti which you wouldn't imagine the members of the public listening to this, but there was a great deal of the graffiti etched over the walls of these police boxes. But honestly, in a wet night in in January or a snowing or, or whatever it was, they were havens of peace and tranquility. You know, they were wonderful. Yeah. Um, and it's a shame they've, they've disappeared. I mean, I'm, I'm sure many, many things went on in police boxes that shouldn't have done, but we won't, we won't get into that. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. So, so, so your police career. Let's go. Let's go into the transition between you leaving the police and becoming a writer. So, when did you leave the Met? I left Neil? in 2015 because I'd done my time. I'd done military time. It meant my 30 years pensionable service was up in 2015. Was up, yeah. And we'd been coming up visiting because I've, I've got some family up on on the Black Island. We'd been coming up visiting for a while, and we'd really fallen in love with it. And I, I just wanted to, you know, we both, myself and my wife and my little boy, we said, let's just, you know, life's really short. Let's 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 take a punt on this. So Absolutely. We upsticked and uh, we moved 500 and, you know, odd miles north, sold the house down south. Of course, your money goes a little bit further up here, so we were able to get... Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I there's never one day gone past that I, I regret uh, leaving the southeast of England. I absolutely love it here you know scotland is my home very much so now and uh, yeah I love, and, and I look out the window i can see the cairngorms from my window i've got you know hundreds of acres of forestry right behind the house so I, you know, I, yeah, it's, uh, you, I don't think, I mean, I, I'm, I'm lucky to live in Loch Lomond side and before, of course, down in Kintyre. And I, I think now, especially at this time, we're recording this and uh, ladies and gentlemen, whenever you're listening to it in the, in the, the midst of the coronavirus, uh, where movement's limited, access to public parks and public areas is limited. And I think people are now beginning to appreciate the places in which they live more than they were before. Do you think that's true, Neil? Oh, without a doubt. I, I, I know I'm really privileged to live where I do. I think compared to my former life where I used to, you know, commute on the tube and the train every day and constantly surrounded by people here, I don't see anybody anyway. I socially distance as a lifestyle choice. I'm not quite Will Dean in the middle of his Swedish forest, but I, I'm sort of closer <laughs> to him than I, you know, my, my former life. So, you know, I've got no complaints whatsoever. It's it's a gorgeous place to live. Yeah, I mean you couldn't have picked better. Uh, but but again, it's a it's a lifestyle change. There's no doubt. I mean, I, I I was down in London for a while, and that was a change for me. Though I did become very fond of Kensington, um, and especially the Churchill Arms, which is still my favourite pump to this day. Have you ever been I the Churchill Arms? I Neil? Been to the Churchill Arms actually. In fact, there was quite an unfortunate event. That I can't really remember anything about in the uh, church Arms, but yeah, Kensington's lovely. Really? Yeah. It wasn't when I was in the church Arms. I, I, you know, there was nothing happened of that nature when I was in there. Yeah. <laughs> I still get every time I'm down. <laughs> Uh, well, that could happen. Every time I go down to London, we always go. We always take a sojourn into the Church Alarms because it really is a cracking pub. And I, I, Church Street, Kensington people, if you, if you're listening, go in. You'll enjoy it. It's wonderful. Yeah, and they it's do. Like it's a, they, that they, eight they quid a, for a pint there now, though. I suspect so. Uh, uh, 
No, it wasn't that bad. I was in there recently with, well, when I say recently, in 2018 with my dear wife and my narrator, um, David Monteith. Yeah, Mr. Monteath, yeah. The man, <laughs> the myth, the legend. And um, it seemed quite reasonable. Mind you, he was buying the drinks. That's fine. All that money you must chuck his way via your publishers. Well, you won't have seen the size of it, the size of a motorbike he arrived on. That must have cost a pretty penny, I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, oh, the man's the man's minted. <laughs> <coughs> anyway, Neil, so you transition, not only do you geographically transition, you transition up the way and, and turn to a new career altogether, which is writing. Now, your first novel, tell us a wee bit about it and how you get started. Well, it was a funny thing, really, because I, I came up here with no idea as to what I was going to do. No thoughts about it whatsoever. I did a little bit of freelance investigation stuff, but only half-heartedly. wasn't really interesting. Sure. Um, now, I'd always been a reader, and I always loved reading. And it had always been one of those things, I think, like most of us who ended up writing, thought, you know, I think I, think I could write. Maybe I could write a book. I'd always loved thrillers. Um, and all the old, I mean, I was reading thrillers as a, a 10, 12 year, you know, 10, 12 year old, all the old. Yeah, me Bandy too. Yeah. Alistair McLean, yep. Len Dayton. I thought, yep. brilliant. I still do. And I just thought, well, I've got time on my hands. So with no more thought given to it than that, I opened my laptop. I didn't really plan anything. And I just came up with a rough idea. I came up and it started off with a character, which is Tom Novak. Um, and I thought I'd make him interesting, so I made him, he was a, a Bosnian refugee from the, the Balkan Wars and happened to be brought up in the highlands of Scotland. He goes to, and he ends up joining the police via a, a period of time in the military, and he finds yeah, himself in a yeah. very, very difficult situation in my first book, in which he, uh, he's, he's an undercover officer, his cover is blown uh, because of some corrupt police officers, mm -hmm. amongst other things, and he finds himself having to run to stay alive, and it's the story of him staying under the under the radar, going dark, which is the, the name of the book, and how he comes out. Yes, end. indeed. And it, it was a blast. It uh, was a huge amount of fun to write. And, and and you did this, you know. I remember writing my first novel, which is Whiskey from Small Glasses, and I did it when I was I was ill, Neil, and I had no real expectation of any kind of success. I wanted something to do, and I thought, well, what can I? I've always wanted to write a book. Let's give this a bash. It'll it'll pass the time. It'll be something that at least semi productive. It'll you know give me some sense of satisfaction at the end of the day. Did you ever harbour the idea that you would be published and successful? I, I think much the same as you, Denzel. I just thought, well, I've got time on my hands. Let's just have a play. And it really was like that. I didn't plot anything, really. I just had a vague idea which what the direction was be. And I just wrote it. Yeah. And I wrote it and I read it and I gave it to my wife who read it and said, oh, I really like it. It's really good. And then I thought, well, maybe I should, you know, see what I can do with it. Now, I got rejected widely. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah. I mean, I we'll revisited do. it and I eventually got, uh, you know, eventually got a publishing deal with uh, with a small publisher and um, it, it's gone pretty well. Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, you've done well on, on Kindle, um, you're, you, you know, and your second book's out. Uh, what, what's that called, Neil? 
The second book's called Going Rogue, which is a, it's a direct follow-on. And it is, uh, again, that's a, a sort of a bit, an exploration really of a combination of far-right terrorism. Todd at the end is deployed to uh, infiltrate a far-right gang, um, which he has to do via prison yeah. of all places. Um, sure. I, I touch on a few themes on that. I wanted to touch on the sort of the themes that, we've, that have come out of Brexit and things like this around disaster capitalism, you know, people with money exploiting yeah. chaos and, uh, you know, f- fiscal chaos to feather their own nests, not mentioning any politicians' names or anything such as that. So I wanted to play with those things. And again, the, everybody seemed to like it. They're, they're both out now. They've both done pretty well. They're both now out in Audible as an audiobook as well. Uh, which Excellent. Is really, really good. And I've, I've just finished. I've written the um, third book, which is now called Going Back, and takes uh, uh-huh. back to Sarajevo, um, where he was, where he's from, on another mission. And um, that's, I'm just going through and doing the final edits on that now. It's uh, Publishers have had their say on it. I'm just doing the necessary on that. And hopefully that will be out late summer, maybe. Uh, it's good that you're on Audible. Who, who's your narrator, Neil? Uh, a bloke called Mike Rogers has done the last one. And I'm absolutely delighted with him. He's an actor who's been in all sorts of bits and bobs over the years, but I think he's, he does an awful lot of um, narration now. And um, yeah. yeah, I've been really, really pleased with him. Um, he nailed the accents. And I do write an awful lot. do. And I did this without giving it any thought. I might, there's loads of different accents in the books. So he's managed to nail those. And that's, again, that's hard to do. It is. I mean, these guys... You, you maybe have heard the, the, I know you listen to the podcast and you'll have heard the one we did with, with David Monteith just recently. Uh, and it, to read a book of three, 400, 500 pages in a very short space of time with no mistakes, it's, it's an admirable feat, isn't it? Genuinely. They re- I think they really earn their money. And, you know, they, do. To, to, and they can transform a book. The difference between an average narration and a, and a a good narration it makes me, I mean, okay, your man, David has got it nailed. He is the voice of Daly and, and obviously Scott as well. He just absolutely nails it. And uh, I think it's, you know, you've done incredibly well with the audio books. I mean, they're hugely popular, aren't they? And uh, obviously Mr. Monty yeah, well, has an awful lot to done. do with that. Well, Dave, David had a reputation. He's, he's also narrated for the likes of um, Denise Mina and Frank Muir. Um, he's narrated the Hamish Macbeth novel, so he'd, he'd done all this prior to me, him narrating for me. And of course, we've known each other for thirty odd years, uh, and it's by pure quirk of fate that he became the narrator of of the daily books. And it was handy that he'd also been down to Campbelltown, uh, but before as well, because he knew the place, he knew the kind of people, he knew what I was talking about, and all that helped towards the portrayal he he has of Daly, which is. I agree with you very, very good indeed, and he's done a great job. But, I mean, he's getting on, and, um, you know, we're always looking, you know, there's a young guy called David Tennant that sounds quite like him. <laughs> so when when Teeth can't do any more, he's out, and it's David Tennant then. Yeah, I'm sure he'll be fine with that. I mean, that'd be awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah, he'll be, he'll be, he'll be all right. He's, 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 he's made his money now. He's got a big pad in Buckinghamshire. What, does he, what more does he need? Yeah. <laughs> Doctor Who, one minute, and he's uh, and uh, daily the next. It'll be fine. 
It'll be not a problem to him. You'll have to put on a bit of weight if he wants to do them on the screen right now. Anyway, uh, so so you've written those three Novak books. The third one's about to be published. What else do you have in the pipeline, Neil? I know you're kind of looking at other subject matter, you know, other books, other different subject matter things you could do. What what, what do you have in mind? Yeah, I um, I have made a start. I'm probably about a quarter of the way through. Um, a, a new project altogether. This, I just really want to test. I want to write. I will write more Novaks. I really want to write. I really like the character and I enjoy writing. Of course, that's no, good character. Um, but I, I fancy writing something completely different. So again, my my love is thrillers rather than absolute whodunits. But I wanted to see if I could perhaps combine the two a little. So I, I'm writing what I hope. Again, I haven't planned it out particularly. I know where it's starting. Um, and I'm hoping it's going to mm-hmm. be a thriller, but with some hints and edges of, I won't use the word tart noir, because uh, I know not everybody. No, please don't. <laughs> I, might oh, no. I might be pitching it something like that. But again, it's going to be a thriller at its heart, um, but it's going to be Scottish at its heart as well. Um, I mm-hmm. live here now, this is home, so I feel I should write about it as well. So I am really excited about it. I'm really uh, I'm in a new character called Max Craigie um, is, okay. is, is going to be out there. So hopefully we'll see how that goes. Um, but I never quite know until I finish writing it how it's going to be because I mean my inability. To yeah, it's a difficult it's a difficult one, especially if you you write you write. I mean you don't sit with post-it notes and whiteboards and things all over the place. Um, so it's it's a it's it's an evolutionary progress, if you like, from the first sentence to the last. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I think there is room. I mean, there's always room for good writing, no matter what the subject. And uh, there's there's also little doubt that the there has been a, an outpouring of of great books from from Scotland in the last. 20, 20 years, beginning a way back with with Michael Vanney and Ian Rankin and Val McDermott, and moving right through to the to the present the present day, where there are now so many writers um, who are covered by that dreadful um, legend Tartan Noir, which I um, find I think it's I think it's misleading in the fact that if 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 you're a reader who's perhaps not aware of of the, the many shades of Tartan Noir, you'll pick a book up that's described as Tartan Noir that that maybe you've read something also described as Tartan Noir and it's, and it's entirely different. Yeah. But you'll never get the chance to, to read that because, you've, you you know, you're not going to pick it up in the first place. No. I, I mean, Do you I, get what I, I mean? I wouldn't know how to approach, um, despite all my years as a detective, I don't know if I can write a whodunit necessarily. Um, but that's just me. I think I, think I just, because I, I, I can only write like many people. I write what I would like to read. I think that that's the way I would have to approach it. Um, I want to be, you know, I want to, yeah. but I would want to pick up and read myself. If I didn't want to do that, I don't think I could, I don't think that the love would be there for it. And I think that would probably shine through in the writing. I think you're probably right. I mean, I, 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 going back to your books, the Novak books, and it was interesting you mentioned that you liked Alistair McCain, McLean, Desmond, Bagley, Len Dayton, et cetera. You know, I read all those those guys around at the same time as you, and your books are very reminiscent of of those writers. Um, and that's what they're (laughs) well you know and and I I wonder we we seem in Britain to have lost that kind of knack Um, you know where where are all the Alistair McLeans that that used to be you know the Americans now do it very very well Um, Ludlam and people like that who who, Clive Cussler 
but, but it, it's a kind of a genre that seems to have, in many respects, dis- disappeared off the shelves uh, as far as British writers are concerned. Would you Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, we are having a couple coming back now. I mean, Adam Hamdy um, has written yeah. her, his latest book, Black 13, I thought was absolutely outstanding. A real edge-of-the-seat thriller. And Tony Kent, okay. um, who is uh, he's a practising barrister, actually, He's written three uh, thrillers that are, again, I think we would, you know, if you're sharing shelf space in terms of genre, I would, I'd love to think I could sit nearby them. Um, they're both. Well, you be, you're sharing, you're, you're about to share podcast space with them because we have Tony Kent lined up as a guest shortly no, in the next super, few weeks. Chap. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, uh, Douglas knows him. I, I've, I've never spoken to him at Douglas is is the man with that and he will be presenting a podcast with Tony Kent very very soon. Oh, that would be good. Um, I should listen out for that. Oh yes, you you've got to listen to the old spear. You never know who's going to be next. Oh, I'm all over. We've got some big really well, we've got some big names lined lined up Neil. So, can you give us the details of your books just one last time just before we we end the podcast just so that people know what the names are, where to get them, etc., etc. Yeah, my uh, my first book is Going Dark. Uh, second one is Going Rogue. They are both available from all good bookstores. Uh, Amazon is probably not going to like to advertise, but they are your easiest way. They're published by Burning Chair uh, <laughs> Publishing, so they could be all via those normal sources. Great stuff. Neil Lancaster, it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for being a guest in the podcast. Many thanks, Denzel. And you've been listening to Spooks, that's S-B-O-O-K-S. We have a new Twitter account. Twitter, it's Spooks, S-B-O-O-K-S 15, at Spooks 15. So please follow us on Twitter Twitter, and miss nothing of the wonderful excitement that goes with this fantastic and fabulous show. It'll keep you entertained during all this lockdown and self-isolation 